It's really good for me to be with you again this morning. Looking forward to opening up the scriptures to you. It's really been good to be back. I had the privilege of uh, being in New York for, for three weeks. Um, one morning I stood up in a church service and I had to introduce myself and, and it went like this. Good morning, brothers and sisters. And everyone went, what language is this guy speaking? <laughs> and then I said, uh, my name is Rhino. And I saw all of them going, what? <laughs> and then I said, uh, but if you want to, you can call me Rhino. <laughs> and the whole congregation was like, yeah, 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 that could work. Hey, Rhino. So guys, uh, good morning. Um, my name is Rhino. Uh, at least you guys understand that. Um, I'm really looking forward, in, uh, looking forward to opening up the word again. It's been such a lovely worship experience this morning, right? Huh? I mean, there's a, there's a, a, a moment where I felt all of us was pushing into what our worship leaders led us in. And that's special. I mean, it's not a sing-along, even though we sing, and it's not a performance, even though someone leads us. I think that's a sweet spot for musical worship. And uh, traveling the United States helped me to visit at least two congregations every Sunday and see different styles of worship. And let me just put this out there to you. I humbly submit this to you, that what we have here is very, very unique. It's very unique. And so contextual, it's brilliant. So while I was there, people were saying, so Rhino, tell me about Rooted. Well, no, that's more of an Australian accent that slipped out there. <laughs> and, and, and I tried to, but my words just couldn't fully describe the vibe we have. I just had to appreciate that. I had a FOMO, I was homesick, I'm back home, and it's good. Okay, guys, we're still in Romans 8. And uh, we call our series Romans 8. We are letting the emphasis of the chapter itself guide our sermon series. Or we are following the development of Paul's arguments and Paul's writing to guide us through the series. And this morning we will be looking at Romans 8 verse 16 to 25. So if you've got a Bible you can open it up. Uh, If you are reading it on the U version on one of your devices you can scroll there. So Oni started Romans 8. Uh, two weeks ago, and what he taught us then was what the liberating work of the Holy Spirit is in our lives, or how does the Holy Spirit work liberation in our lives. Last week, he preached on what the Holy Spirit gives us in our liberation, and you guys will remember there was four new things, right? New mindset, a new sense of life, a new obligation, and also a new identity. So today what we'll do is we will, uh, um, we will look for where the Holy Spirit is headed with us, right? So the Holy Spirit brings liberation, the Holy Spirit gives in our liberation, and now the question is where is the Holy Spirit taking us? And the short answer is it's taking us from groans to glory. The Holy Spirit is taking us from groans to to glory. Okay. So before we start, I would like to show you a picture. And this was actually the reason for my question of the day about art. And let me be blatantly honest with you. As I was fitting my mic, listening to your feedback, I gave myself a series of self-fives inside. <laughs> because I thought it was a good question. Do you know what I mean? So I had one, and then I had another, and then I was like, ooh, art. Let me float that one in there. But let me show you this picture. So this is a painting by a well-known painter called Vincent van Gogh. 
and this painting's name is At Eternity's Gate. And I think, actually, that they made a movie about him, that they're also called At Eternity's Gate. So, obviously, this picture is influenced by where Van Gogh lived, what inspired him to do art and to make art and to paint, and obviously who this person is that he was painting. So, originally, the painting was called Worn Out. And what he painted was a war veteran spent by life, just like being utterly exhausted. And the original painting actually depicted this war veteran dead, slumped over in his chair, no life left in him. And then Vincent van Gogh decided to rework this painting and purposefully depict this person in prayer. And purposefully depicting this person in anguished prayer. When Van Gogh was uh, interviewed about this painting, he said that he reworked it in the season of Christmas and New Year. And what he wanted to depict was a position of anguish and fatigue, but hopeful nonetheless. Isn't that just beautiful? So fatigue and anguish and pain slumped over in anguished prayer. But it's in the prayer where the hope is. So anguished and fatigued, but hopeful nonetheless. It's an iconic painting and very acclaimed right across the world. Question, is this something that you can connect with? I mean, because that's what we all spoke about, right? The reason why we like art is because we connect with it. Can you connect with this? Is this something you know? Have you gone through moments where you experienced anguish and pain? Has there ever been moments in your life where you wished that whatever it is that you hoped for would just be realized now? Do you guys know that feeling? Like we know that we hope in something, but man, it would be so great if that could just happen now. And this could all just end. Loss, whatever kind of loss, tragedy that you might have gone through, bad news that you might have received, a feeling of disillusionment. That's probably one of my worst experiences when I thought something about someone or something and then it turned out not to be that way. It feels like someone is just banging me on the ear, leaving me reeling. Not a great feeling. Have you ever experienced daily life as toil? The old word in Ecclesiastes. Oh, listen to this one. It's good with my rolling R. Grind. Have you ever experienced life as a grind? Life as a hustle. Life that makes you sit in the chair. Like that old war veteran right there. I want you to keep this image in the front of your mind as we journey through this piece of scripture today. So a few good questions, I think, for us just to guide us is, what do we do as Christians in moments like these? Because anyone around the world can connect with this painting, right? But what do we do as Christians in these moments? How is the Spirit, because Romans 8 is leading us now into a time of understanding the Spirit more, how is the Spirit present in these moments? And what is the Spirit doing in these moments? Or where is the Spirit headed with us when we sit in the chair. If you are a believer this morning, I want to pray for you. And my prayer for you is that you would take courage if you are in the chair.
knowing full well what lies ahead of us. And we'll get there in this piece of scripture. And may you also take courage, if you're not in the chair now, but when you eventually do get in the chair. We have to acknowledge, friends, that while we are on this side of the full redemption and restoration of this world, this is a reality. If you are not a believer, here's my prayer for you. I pray that you would know that there is hope. Always. There is always hope, even when you are in the chair. And there's always hope when you are in the chair because of what Jesus Christ did through his life, his death, his resurrection, ascension, the pouring out of his spirit. And I want you to know this morning that you'll only ever have access to this hope by surrendering your life to him as Lord. It cannot be accessed in any other way. No blog will get you there. No motivational video that you can find on the interwebs will get you there. The only hope that you'll ever find is in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I humbly submit that to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are waiting here for you. We are expecting to be refreshed and encouraged and edified. We are expecting to experience um, the vitality that comes with your spirit in our lives. If we are slumped over this morning and sat in the chair, my prayer is that we would take hope that we would take hope because we know what lies ahead of us is absolutely glorious because you have guaranteed that to us. I pray that we would read the scripture and that it would be illuminated not only in our heads but also in our hearts. That today won't be just another uh, monologue that we listen to but that it would be living words spoken giving life to us, your children. We take courage in knowing that you are not far, that you have not left us, that you have never forsaken us and that you will never do that, but that you are very intimately and closely present in this place this morning through your Holy Spirit. May your name be glorified, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so guys, let's read all the verses and then I'll take them uh, kind of in groups. Romans 8, verse 16. It'll also be up on the screen for you. This is Paul writing and he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, if that's at all relevant to you. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Coming in really difficult Pauline language. 
And that's why we'll take it verse by verse. So Oni landed the plane last week by pointing out that the Holy Spirit gives us a new identity. And that's where we'll start today. And the reason why we're starting where we landed last week is it's really impossible to understand this selection of Scripture if we don't have a very good grip on our new identity that the Spirit gives us. Okay? So verse 16 and 17 is uh, where we'll start. Now, according to these two verses, who are we? Two things. We are God's children. And not only that, we are also His heirs. Now, there is a lot of awesomeness in these two verses. But if we camp out here today, I'm afraid that we'll never get to where we are supposed to go in this sermon, and that is to get from groans to glory. So it will suffice to say the following about these two verses. The first verses, whoa, verses. The concept of sonship, right? In the Bible, in the first century, and also in Pauline writings, links to the theme of inheritance. They always go together. Because the primary purpose of adoption in the first century was to provide a suitable heir. Okay? So people in the first century said, I have something, and I ought to pass it on to someone, and I have to pass it on to my heirs. So who will be a suitable heir for this that has been given to me? And why is this important? Well, guys, remember the narrative arc of the Old Testament. Remember that a key moment in the Old Testament was God saying to Abraham, Dude, I want to be your God. Will you be my people? And I'm starting small with you, but I'll make you into a great nation. And this great nation, I'm guaranteeing certain things. And this great nation will pass on these things that I am going to give to them from generation to generation, eventually, so that the whole world will be blessed through this family. Do you guys remember that part of the Old Testament story? I mean, I literally just leaped from Genesis 12 all the way through to Paul. Okay? But it's important to understand that arc of the Old Testament. And that's why inheritance is still a real thing when it comes to the Jewish community today and Jewish believers today. Like, what are you leaving behind? Because what you have was given to you by God and you ought to give that to someone that will steward it in the same way. Now, these two verses tell us that we are fellow heirs with Christ and also that we may be glorified with Him. That's quite the inheritance. That's quite the inheritance for us to get as heirs. Now, it's very clear to us that we have not yet entered into our full inheritance. Right? I mean, which one of you got up this morning and went, I feel so glorified. No suffering whatsoever. No pain, no groaning. Dude, it has happened. None of us felt this way this morning. So we have not yet entered into our full inheritance. If I can play a little bit with words, we are on, this, we are on the other side of the cross, but we are on this side of full restoration and redemption of God's creation. We are in this liminal space. Neither here nor there. We're not where we were, praise God for that, but we're also not yet where we want to be. So what does the Spirit gives us mean? 
It means that we identify with the life of Jesus when he was on earth. In exactly the same way that we identify with his life after his glorification. Can I say that again? We identify with the life of Jesus when he was on earth. Serving, loving, sacrificing, being obedient, moving towards the margins, inviting people into a relationship with God, giving all in a sacrificial way. In exactly the same way that we identify with his life after his glorification. This hope in a body that will be made new. In a place, in a space, God's space, that will also be made new. So the awesomeness of what is to come will entail suffering. Do you want to do a quick battery change? So the awesomeness of what is to come as we've seen in the life of Jesus, will entail suffering. Yes, it will, friends. And this is one of those moments that it feels like the Bible punches us in the gut. Do you feel that? Dude, it will entail suffering. Oh, that's hard to take. Why? Because we're selfish. And we're sinful. And we want to live the way that we're comfortable. Let's just be blatantly honest. We live in this world where we add the word self to whatever we feel comfortable with. Self-identifying, self-fulfilling, self-actualizing. I was in a lecture of Sam Albury now in New York City and he said, you know the problem is with self? The only place where self is added in the New Testament before any other word is denial. And I went, dude, drop the mic now and leave. <laughs> Think about it. Pick up your cross and follow me. That's it. That's the only thing you do with yourself, is you deny yourself. And if we deny ourselves and we follow Jesus, and it entails suffering so that we can get to the glory that awaits us, then it's one of those things that we have to, have to accept. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided... We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So if this is who we are, and the Spirit is at work in us, and the Spirit is doing in us everything that we've read up to this point in this chapter, where is the Spirit taking us? A liberating Spirit that gives us all these new things, that gives us this new identity, while we are in this in-between space, where is the Spirit headed with us? Verse 18. Consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This present time gets described through Paul as suffering. It is real and it should not be ignored. But, and it's a big but, in this context I like big buts. See what I did there? <laughs> but, but... It has, dudes, I'm showing that I'm broadening my music appetite. Okay? Didn't work? Cancel it. We'll edit it out of the podcast. Anyhow, so it is real and it shouldn't be ignored, but it has to be put into the perspective of a bigger storyline. And what is the bigger storyline, guys? The bigger storyline is where our lives are headed through Jesus Christ. Where our world is headed because of Jesus. And where is this? Our trajectory is towards glory. 
Now remember, Paul writes this letter to a church that lives under the shadow of persecution by the Roman government in the Roman capital. They had it difficult, guys. It wasn't cool to be a Christian in those days. So one of the themes that you'll find in the book of Romans, just a little segue, is what is the meaning of suffering? Now, I know we don't live under the Roman emperor anymore, but I've come to the realization that it is not sexy to be a Christian anymore. And I've come to the realization that even in this local church, we have a lot of people who had to count the cost before accepting faith in Jesus Christ. I realize that many of you come from families that did not have you grow up as a Christian or with a Christian background. And the day that you decided to take up your cross and follow Jesus, it was a costly, costly day. That's the kind of persecution that happened in that church as well. It meant a whole overhaul of your life. And it meant identifying yourself sometimes with your blood-bought family and not only your blood family. Now, if we follow Paul's arguments as we go, I want you to see the following. Paul says, even though this present time is a time of suffering, it didn't start here and it doesn't end here. That's great news, guys. That's great news. Let's keep going. Verse 19 to 21. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's beautiful, but it's really difficult. I sometimes wish that the guy that was writing as Paul was speaking went, Paul, dude, just wow. Just double click on that for us a little bit. Let's just know a little more. But here's where Paul gets at. He mentions creation. Why does he mention creation? Have you guys thought about it? Okay, because he was speaking to believers in Jesus Christ. But now he mentions creation and he mentions a subjection to futility and a hope for its liberation. Why does Paul state this as an argument? Why does he mention this? Remember that in Paul's head, the story doesn't begin here in his present time. Paul has the whole of the Hebrew scriptures as his background. Paul was a disciple of Gamaliel, which meant that at the age of 13, Paul, could, um, uh, um, Paul memorized the whole Tanakh, the law, the prophets, and the scriptures. And he could literally, like say it from the beginning, Genesis 1, all the way through to the end of Malachi at the age of 13. That's quite a thing, right? So Paul knows this book. And he knows how this book started. And where did this book start? It started in Genesis. So what we have here is a reflection on Genesis 1 to 3. And Paul that describes what happened since then. What do we as human beings have to do with all of this pain that creation is suffering? And what do we as followers of Jesus have to do with all of this? So let's just recount the creation story really quickly. God speaks and he creates. And when he creates, there's order and categories. Everything works together in this beautiful harmony and everything complements each other. Every time God says, this is good, this is good, this is good. And at the end of the story, at least at the end of Genesis 1, 26 to 27, God says, let us now make humans. And let's put all of this that we've created under the stewardship of these humans. These unique beings with this unique role, I want them to have dominion over this and that will be their function. 
It's a beautiful start to the story. It's unbelievable. And you guys know, page three of the Bible, it all goes wrong. Why? Because human beings didn't do great in what God gave them to do, and they gave into evil. And that has ushered literally everything we know and see as the known world into this time of suffering. It has drastic consequences for the created realm as well. Here's a quick illustration. I put to you an elephant. One of the big five. Just a majestic, majestic creature, right? Now, elephants have a capacity to destroy the bush. I don't know if you guys have seen it. The average male elephant bull drinks 50 gallons of water a day. That's like almost 200 liters, between 180 and 200 liters. They'll never get gout because they drink enough water. And the average male bull uh, might graze for 18 hours a day, eating 300 kilograms of leaves. Guys, that's a lot. So if you've ever been in uh, the bush, and you've seen elephants eating, you'll be able to recall that sound of branches breaking, and trees being uprooted, and leaves just being chowed, and elephants going, there's a tree, and there's a tree, and here's a tree, I'm going to go straight through this tree, and push it over, and eat the roots, because it's nice and juicy, right? So elephants have got the capacity to do quite some damage to the bush. Now here's the crazy thing, the bush grows back, even though the elephant is like the hard, the most hardcore grazer of all of it, the bush grows back. This is what we make when we destroy the bush. Cue next photo. I don't think that needs explanation, right? So when we take out some branches and some trees, we build that. That's New York City. And I specifically, specifically, shows a picture that looks a little foggy and smoky. Because that was, that's what comes with big city life. So we have a unique capacity as human beings to remake creation. Here's the point. God's good world, God's non-human world, God's material world, God's natural created world was brought into a period of suffering. And Paul wants us to know this, and he states it so seriously that he anthropomorphizes the creation, which means he gives human qualities to creation. He says the creation waits, the creation is frustrated, the creation is in slavery and in bondage. That's all stuff that humans experience. But he puts that onto creation to state the seriousness of his argument. So this is where we are, friends, in the present time. There's bondage, and there's death, and there's suffering, and it's all because of evil. Creation is eagerly waiting for the next part, and for the next step. And when will this happen? Well, in this piece of scripture, Paul says, that's when humans get liberated. Well, let me say it differently, and I want you to get a grip on this. What happened to Jesus Christ, when he was raised from the dead, is a preview for what will happen with the whole of creation. That's how Paul applies it. It's not me. It's in the Bible. That's a preview of what will happen with the whole of creation. The end game is God's permanent commitment to the goodness of his created world. Because he created it to be good. And he will rescue it. 
So this world is on a trajectory towards restoration, towards liberation, towards healing. Or we can umbrella all of those terms and call it glory. That's where we headed. Praise God, guys. Why? Because it gives us a position in this in-between time. It helps us to understand how we should live faithfully as Christians in this in-between time. So how's that? Let's go to verse 22 and 23. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Why would Paul mention the word groaning? Because groaning is part of the history of the Old Testament. Who else groaned in the Old Testament? The Israelites. Did you say Job? Yes, he did. He also did. The same word, anach, is being used there. But who groaned? The Israelites. And what did they groan for? They groaned for liberation. Why? Because they were caught in a place that was not what God promised them according to the covenant. They wanted to be freed from Egypt. That's why Paul mentions the word groaning. Why do you guys think he would mention childbirth? Because he wants to make the point that the world is shuddering in pain. Now let me just be blatantly honest with you guys. We should stop saying childbirth is almost like. Because there's nothing like childbirth. I haven't been there? Yes. Donkey metal. I haven't been there myself. But I remember the day when Marie was in labor and Ava was born. Guys, guys, and I'm specifically saying guys like male men in this place. Dudes, it is real. I've never in my life seen such pain. And my wife was an absolute champion. Dude, just hold my hand. And that graph goes. And then the midwives go. That's a big one. It is unparalleled. Now, why do you guys think Paul chose this metaphor? I mean, couldn't have Paul said, let me just get to that scripture. Um, the whole of creation has been groaning together after it was punched in the gut really hard. Like, why does Paul choose the metaphor of childbirth? Because labor or childbirth is unique in the sense that the pain gives birth to something new. If you get punched in the gut, it only leaves a bruise, right? And there's nothing new there. But Paul uses this because it speaks of the intensity of the pain, but also because it's unparalleled and because something new comes from it. If I may, if I may, let me just mention the cross in this way. Can you guys think about how painful this redemption was on the cross? The worst pain Jesus could ever have suffered gave life to something new. And that's why Paul chooses this metaphor. And what Paul says in verse 23 is, we will be spending time in the chair. We will find ourselves in the chair. 
And when we find ourselves in the chair, we shouldn't be tempted to create distance between God and us. Guys, that's the knee jerk of individualistic, westernized, modernized, middle and upper class, spoiled, selfish, self, whatever you want to call it, human beings. Is the moment we are in the chair, we say God has left us. The moment we are in the chair, we are tempted to think that God is a million miles away. What's the good news? The good news in this piece of scripture is that when we are in the chair and we groan inwardly and we feel like we are giving birth to a child and the turmoil is getting too much, we ought to know that we are on a different path. We are headed to something way more glorious than what we are experiencing now. And we need to be patient in those moments when we groan. A quick illustration. Ava, our eldest, who's three years old, she knows when something is going to happen that she will enjoy. So it's like, let's take a bath, or let's go to bed, or let's eat, right? I mean, for a child of three years old, those are very enjoyable experiences. And what's amazing to me is how she can wait like for four hours for this great thing that's going to happen, but then 10 minutes before it happens, she just goes off the rails completely. It's like the turmoil she experiences, not being able to have this just becomes too much. Or the agitation that she experiences just takes her way off the rails. Any teachers in the house? Any teachers in the house? The last 10 minutes before school ends? Like everything was perfect up until that point. And then the kids just go, ah, just lose it completely. We shouldn't be like that because we know where we are headed. And guys, I know that some of you are in the chair. And I know that some of you are going to, through some really, really tough stuff. Now, what does Paul tell us in these two verses we should keep our eyes on? I'll point you to the word first fruits. What's first fruits? First fruits is holding in your hand a small part of the whole thing that is to come. I mean, I didn't grow up on a farm and I don't own land, just putting it out there. <laughs> but here's the amazing thing about first fruits is the first two palms full of grain is holding a small part of the whole harvest. That will come. Paul says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Isn't that just amazing? He says the Spirit in our lives is like holding something that is a small portion of what is to come. And we have the first fruits while we groan inwardly. But that is why we wait eagerly for this thing to come. So let me submit this to you. Groaning, my dear brother and sister, is a very deep and a very, very spiritual exercise. But our world does not want to know it. We live in a world that says you ought to be happy. And listen to this, God wants you to be happy. You name it and you claim it. Mansion, piece of cake for God. New job, Piece of cake for God. What do we do with Romans 8 then? That's like my question, right? If that is the whole truth, what do we do with scriptures like this? Do you guys think Paul had an off day? 
Do you think it slipped into the canon? No. This is part of living as Christians. And when we come to this place, when we groan, when we look at the first fruits we have, when we sit in this chair in these moments of anguish, when we feel like we just want to go off the rails now because we can't wait anymore, what do you guys think we find there? What we find there is hope. Christians find hope in those moments. Paul says it in verse 24 to 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees, says Paul. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Being a Christian is learning to live in hope. Illustration. I really hope when I put my hand in my pocket now, I'm going to find some lip ice because my lips are dry. Hey, look at this. Man, I found my lip ice. Is that hope? No, because I knew I had it, right? Hope means that you don't possess in full reality the thing that you are setting your hope on. And to be a Christian means to be hoping, guys. We find hope and we become hopeful people. So how do we do this? We sit and we wait patiently. These are crucial moments for us. Crucial, crucial moments for us. We also pray. Think about the picture of at eternity's gates. And sometimes we pray pain-filled prayers. I think that's probably where we might head next week in the verses to come. But in this context at least, what does hope mean, guys? What does it mean to be patient in waiting? And what do we have to do with this in-between position? We have no question, and this is important, we have no question about the end of the story, right? Because we are told that we are heirs of what will happen in the end. But we also do still experience some of the brokenness of this world. We are groaning. Let me offer this to you as a, clothing, uh, as a closing word. Because I think this is what it means to hope in this time and place. It's a, a quote from a guy called Tim Mackey. I enjoy him a lot. He started the Bible Project. He's got a fantastic podcast called Exploring My Strange, My Strange Bible. And in one of his sermons he said this. Christian hope is not based on my circumstances. Christian hope is a vision of hope that keeps my heart and my mind alert and alive to what God is doing in the world. And it has nothing to do with how well my life is going or how well the world is going. That is the kind of hope we so desperately need. So as we come to the table today, today's communion, as we come to the table today, guys, we groan. We are in that in-between position. And my prayer for you, or my piece of encouragement for you, would be to know and to taste and to believe that this groaning will change to glory because of that. 
Because of what Jesus did, the fact that he died and that he shed his blood for us means that our groaning will change to glory. Taste it today. Believe it today. See it today. Broken bread, the symbol of a broken body. Shed blood, the symbol of payment that was made. And as we take the bread and the cup today, we eagerly await the experience that Jesus had himself after rising from the grave. And that ought to help us to take courage. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you to look for your city group leader. City group leaders, city group facilitators. All of you can come and get a tray, right? I want you to hold the tray and to give everyone the opportunity to come to the tray and to take the bread and to take the cup. And instead of using it today in a group, instead of interacting with each other in a group today, I want us to take the bread and the wine and go and sit down. And just spend some time in this position of groaning and of hoping and of knowing and of believing. And if you need to groan, groan it out. And if you're not in the chair at the moment, take courage because when you do get in the chair, suffering is part of this present time, you'll groan, but you'll groan holding the first fruits of the Spirit in your hand, knowing that God does not hold out on us. That's probably one of the biggest lies we believe in this world, is that God lied, that He's not going to be, he's not, He won't be pulling through on His promises. Paul says we have the Spirit. 